What you get for that thing? You don't need to know everything, Carl G. I need to know that. Keep running that mouth of yours, I'm gonna take you in the back and screw you. Big talk. Keep it up. Fine. I don't wanna know. I don't even wanna know where you've been all day. That'll work. God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello everyone and welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. And I'm Matt. And this is episode number 43, No Country for Old Men. The uh, bronchitis edition. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> probably going to be a lot of throat clearing and coughing throughout this one. Yeah, just hit the cough button. <laughs> um... So, this is our big uh, Thanksgiving episode, I guess. A best picture winner. <laughs> I'm not sure how that's related to Thanksgiving, but... I don't know. Some I, This show has been accused of uh, picking obscure... Has it? ...topics. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> has, so. it, has it been accused of that by someone other than the person sitting <laughs> to my right right now? There's been rumblings out there. As far as I can remember, this is this would be the second Best Picture winner that we've done so far on the pod. Okay. That's, I'm going to trust you. Unconfirmed. Yeah. Because <laughs> I can't remember. But Silence of the Lambs. Way back. Right. In the forgotten episodes. In the forgotten the ones episodes. we don't talk about. Uh, 2008, pretty big year, though. I was looking... Looks like the Best Picture nominees were uh, this, Juno, uh, There Will Be Blood, Michael Clayton, which kind of a forgotten one there, but, you know, pretty good year. Sure. (laughs) What was, um, was there another one? Uh, I'm sure there, I think there was probably one more, but I don't remember what it was. Okay. All right. So, you know. Was that the same year that Kate Winslet had like Revolutionary Road and The Reader? Or Maybe. was that a different year? Uh, I don't know. Anyway. <clears throat> For all of these riveting Fast. Oscar remembrances. <laughs> I don't you know. Can, this was a pretty good year. <clears throat> sure. <clears throat> you can follow the show on Twitter at GreatestPod. <laughs> Find all of our Old archived episodes on greatestmoments.podbean.com. Subscribe on iTunes and whatnot. Right. <laughs> don't worry, I don't run the uh, Twitter account, so if you don't want to hear my what's been deemed dumb opinions. <laughs> Who said that? Bell. It was a dumb opinion, he said. 
I'm sure it was, though. Let's be honest. <laughs> exactly. Um, <clears throat> do we have anything else to say before we wrap it up? I mean, before we get into it? <laughs> no. Well, I mean, I don't know. what. <laughs> was there something you wanted to say about Thanksgiving? No. <clears throat> the only thing I'm thankful for this year is... 43 quality episodes uh-huh. of this yeah. podcast. Right. <laughs> Not that this is the best time to bring this up, but uh, I found like another podcast via iTunes that hosts itself on Podbean, and they have more than 20 episodes up at a time. Oh. So I'm really kind of unsure why we have that limit. Okay. <laughs> Something to look into. <laughs> I feel like I've tried so many times. Well, it might take a greater mind than yours. Well, you feel free to have a crack at it. <laughs> a less busy mind. All right, so by the time uh, 2008 rolled around, are you sure? I think it was like the end of 2007 when this came out. All right. It was the 2008 Oscars. Yeah. Either way, kind of an interesting time for the Coen brothers. It had been a while since they had really kind of, you know. A big hit. Yeah, they, like, crossed over into that, right. you know... Mainstream... Pop culture yeah. zeitgeist kind oh, of yeah. collective conscience <laughs> kind of thing. Like, beyond just, like, the typical movie nerds who would be into anything that they put out or whatever. Like, I feel like... When, when did Oh Brother, Where Art Thou come out? Wasn't that, like, 2000? Something like that, <laughs> yeah. Because um, I think they had, like... Intolerable cruelty and like the lady killers and stuff like that. Yeah. Which were kind of, you know, failing to make an impact in the same way that right. like a Fargo or Big Lebowski. Big Lebowski or something like that. And this was like a almost right away, just from like, you know, any of the uh, trailers and commercials and stuff, it, you could tell right away that this was like a more serious tone yeah. than um, what we had seen from the Coens in a while. Right. Because even like a film like Fargo, which has its moments of violence and it isn't necessarily like a comedy per se is still kind of comedic and oddball at times. Quirky. Yeah. Yeah. And, And that none of that is in no country for old men. It's pretty straightforward all the way through. Yeah. Just kind of a cat and mouse thriller. You know, pretty dramatic. <laughs> I feel like you could draw some similarities between this and Fargo. Francis McDormand and uh, Tommy Lee Jones characters, not all that different. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I can see that. Okay. We'll table um, that for some <laughs> other time. <laughs> so, the film takes place in the... Mm, I guess far southern rural. reaches of rural Texas, yeah. uh, close to the border, in 1980. Pre-wall. Uh, <laughs> and the picture kind of opens with some narration from Tommy Lee Jones, um, who kind of plays like the conscience of the film, kind of... Uh, in his role as this police officer who is trying to intervene 
in this situation that unfolds. He never, you know, actually does anything. <laughs> he never actually interacts with and uh the other two principal characters right. at any point and you know obviously um i think that's intentional and we'll, we'll kind of get to that kind of stuff as we go but he kind of serves as the only character to have any narration um and in a lot of ways can feel like the main character at, at times yeah so he kind of is giving this um basic stark um introduction to the film um kind of setting the stage for what the film will be about which is the changing <clears throat> of the times uh the times becoming uh more violent and as a decent man a a man in law enforcement he kind of feels overmatched by what he feels is coming right and just kind of like this even more broad idea of just not being able to relate to the generation coming up. Exactly. Um, he kind of he even kind of tells like a little story about sending a guy to the uh, electric chair. Right. Yeah. Um, who had killed a fourteen-year-old girl or something like that, and it's <laughs> in a weird way, it almost is like a comedic story because yeah. almost everything Tommy Lee Jones says in the film kind of has this um Texas charm to it. <laughs> yeah, he he kind of has like these like Yogi Berra expressions <laughs> or Yogi Bear even. Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> and then we see uh this odd-looking man I feel like is the only way to describe Javier Bardem in this movie uh, with his hair um, being arrested and taken to a uh, police station yeah and then this cop just thinks he just you know bagged the catch of his career well yeah I mean it's unclear if he knows well, anything about no, this guy yeah, but I just, he doesn't seem to really well, what's he arresting him for we don't know right yeah we don't know but I mean he's a pretty big scary dude and he he takes his weapons the cop does right because he reports on what he has so it's like I mean you pull out this like shotgun looking thing with like a silencer and this air gun thing that he uses and you'd be like all right this dude's like a serious man <laughs> <laughs> But in an odd kind of, well, not odd, uh, in a convenient little twist, um, similarly to what uh, Tommy Lee Jones was talking about uh, to start the film, this particular cop doesn't see what's coming. Right. He's not prepared for this level of psycho- <clears throat> psychosis or whatever you want to describe it's like however you want to describe antoine sugar <laughs> shocking that this cop would be able to apprehend <laughs> this villain um <clears throat> yeah because he takes him to this police station and it, for whatever reason it seems like this particular cop is there by yeah. himself right um because sugar while the cop is on the phone is um able to step through his handcuffed arms to bring them out to the front of his body rather than behind his back and then you know proceeds to strangle the cop 
with the handcuffs and you know in the process cutting like the artery in his neck and blood is splurting everywhere gross yeah and so we know even before we're introduced to josh brolin or we see the um botched uh drug deal that basically sets in motion the entire film before we see any of that we meet this guy so his like threat his danger kind of looms over the proceedings everything that comes after it we know that this guy's involved and we know that he's insane and dangerous yeah um unstoppable so then we meet uh what is his name llewellyn yeah llewellyn moss (laughs) which is uh, the names in this movie are kind of hard to get used to ed tom ed tom everyone has two names carla jean yeah but Llewellyn, which is uh, somehow <clears throat> a male's name, yeah. <laughs> we see him. He's just, uh, I guess he's hunting. hunting. for sport, yeah. Um, I don't even In know what those things Texas are. Texas countryside, uh, yeah. I don't, uh, hunting not the expertise of the members of this podcast. Or animals. I want to say gazelle, but that can't be right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's some kind of like elk or something. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> Something that that dude from Roadhouse has, like, all over the walls of his trophy room. While he's out, like, in this, you know, barren kind of uh, dusty plain, he spies a couple of trucks just out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, not a lot of activity around them. So he kind of uh, makes his way over there and finds, like, a massacre, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Even the dog. His demeanor, is dead. Uh, unfazed by the scene. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, he's. He's curious. He's not the brightest guy ever, but he's not. He's certainly not naive. I think he right. knows yeah. what the deal is here. It's a drug deal gone bad. I think, you know, he finds the uh, heroin in the back of. A lot of it, yeah. One of the trucks. Opens the door to the truck, finds one dude, is still kind of alive somehow asking for agua (laughs) yeah there's one dying man uh who desperately wants some water um which llewellyn's like where's the last man who survived this thing and you know he's unable to communicate with (laughs) right because you know one could surmise that he's already realized that there's some sort of monetary yeah he's done that prize at the end of this for that he may be able to find because if the drugs are still there and everyone's dead and you don't find the money then it seems like somebody may have tried to go off with the money there's a pretty good chance that that person is wounded yeah Llewellyn has a gun (laughs) since he was out hunting although I don't know it's unclear the lengths he'd be willing to go to get money out of this I don't know we're not really sure yeah, I mean, I guess you could assume that since, for the most part, he's portrayed as like a a, a decent guy who right. kind of just got himself into this weird situation. situation that he wouldn't kill somebody for the money, but he was interested. You know, certainly take it if it was sitting there, right? And that's what he does. Right. Uh, he tracks down the last guy who died underneath a tree, you know, I, I guess maybe a mile or so away. Right. And he finds a briefcase full of cash, which I guess is about like $2 million or I forget how much they say it is. It's it's a lot of cash, especially yeah. in 1980. Right. <laughs> that's a big night. 
<laughs> and so he's able to retrieve the money, walk all the way back to his truck, which by this point is I mean, this seems considerably insane. far yeah. away. And he, you know, he's a, he's basically scot free at this point. Yeah, it's all good. Um, the movie ends, and uh, it all worked out for the Moss family. Except, of course, you know, one of the the reasons that they, or one of the ways that they're able to portray Llewellyn as like a decent guy, he has a conscience, and yep. so he goes back to his trailer, hides the money, and has a nice interaction with his lovely wife. <laughs> Keep it up. (laughs) (laughs) And he finds himself unable to sleep, so he fills up a jug full of water and decides to head back. (laughs) Right. um, Thinking that maybe he'll be able to uh, provide some water to the uh, dying man. Although it's like what the goal even there is. I mean, I, I understand that, yeah, he feels bad for this dude that's dying and doesn't have any water, but it's like if this dude is resuscitated... Now there is a dude that would know who he is and would know about the money. You know what I mean? I never really thought of it like that. I, I kind of assumed that he he knew the guy was dying, that yeah. there wasn't going to be any okay. saving this right. guy. Just giving him water. Just to comfort. help him ease okay. that All right. journey. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, ultimately, of course, this is a stupid decision because yeah. some people have been sent, you know, to retrieve the money. Right. You know, uh, with a drug deal of this nature, obviously there's going to be uh, other parties, involved. pretty big people involved right. with that kind of money, and uh, this psycho that we've seen from you know the opening part of the film, Antoine Chigurh, he shows up and meets these other two guys. Uh, two I think, suits, yeah, later described as uh, managerial types, right. <laughs> <laughs> and. They take him down to the scene. They kind of look around. They see Llewellyn's truck. Antoine cuts the... Uh, he takes that thing off the door of the car. The, uh, you know, registrate. I don't know what it's called. Oh, The okay. thing he takes off the door of Llewellyn's truck. I don't even remember that. <laughs> it's, you know, like the serial number. I don't know what okay. they call that with cars. Something. Anyway, so in other words, he's going to be able to track this person down. Because he right. has information of like who the car is registered to and you know whatever but it obviously you know it just so happens that the loan's still there i'm kind of like way i'm kind of mixing two scenes I think. Well, yeah because i think before Shigur shows up to meet the managerial dudes llewellyn's chased by another group of mexican right, dudes right, with right. dogs so yeah that's why his truck is left at the scene yeah yeah you're right the thing that always confused me though and this kind of goes beyond even just this scene and kind of throughout the film, and I, it never really, for whatever reason, occurred to me until much later that there are two sides to this drug deal, and they're right. both pursuing Llewellyn. The money, yeah. Basically, but I can't think of that actor's name. The one that, you know, is like the boss guy. Uh, Yeah, I can't remember. The dude from Office Space. Yeah. In True Blood. Who was he in True Blood? I think he was a vampire that gets killed in one of the early seasons in a basement. Probably, yeah. Steven Root. Yeah. The thing, okay, so there are two sides to the drug deal, and they both are pursuing the money. 
but it seems like Stephen Root's character gives a transponder to both of both of them. He gives one to Antoine, but also the Mexican guys. Right. Yeah. And I don't so know that always like confused sort of like, me. If it's some sort of like a, a attempt to make good for the drug deal gone wrong. I don't know. Yeah, because we don't know which side of the deal Stephen Root represented. I guess the money side, not the drug side, since he has the transponder. Right. Right. Okay. So they were buying the drugs. Yeah. And the you know they were being brought up. Right across the border, but um, yeah, it always like threw me off because I wasn't sure. Because we know after a while that Shigur kind of goes rogue, like, <laughs> almost well, immediately, really. Yeah, because he kills those two managerial dudes. Right. Um, in a particularly hilarious yet <laughs> kind of blood chilling kind right. of scene. He's just like, uh, here, hold this, <laughs> and then eviscerates them immediately. Yeah, but it, it always was like un I, like I was always unsure if the Mexican guys were like on the same side as Sugar, but he had gone rogue, so that then they weren't because he just was doing his own thing, or if they were representing like opposite sides, which is w- the conclusion I came to at one point. But then it throws you off when you realize that they've been given a transponder too. So right. it's almost as if everyone's working together other than sugar. It's like, and then how did he even get involved in the first <laughs> yeah, place? It's hard to figure out. Yeah. But ultimately like, it doesn't really matter. It's just like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> and I mean, that's kind of the thing with this film. It's kind of like this, it kind of has this like hazy, um, weaving kind of plot that kind of, moves between the three central characters you know played by Josh Brolin, Tommy Lee Jones and Javier Bardem like we already mentioned the three of those characters rarely ever interact right <laughs> um there is a brief moment when uh Sugar and Llewellyn mm. are are in the same scene together They're engaged yeah <laughs> But aside from that, none of these three central figures ever share the screen. And, like, I think some of the plot details kind of are not super important because you can kind of... The the main story is still there. It just kind of snakes around these three characters and you don't really ever see anything develop too long with one of them before you're moving to the other to kind of pick up the story and so like in that kind of narrative some of these little details kind of get lost where you're kind of unsure because you know theoretically if they're all moving forward at the same time it's like well we might be with Llewellyn when it's being explained to someone as to what's going on with the transponders or whatever and you know in what is like a recurring theme on this podcast I'm going to bring up you know what people on the internet say but (laughs) I did see, you know, a lot of people on some message boards kind of um, trying to poke holes in the plot. <laughs> Shocker. I, Why is Anton Sugar one county <clears throat> over when the movie opens? Well, like, yeah, the whole, like, why is he already there before the drug deal ever goes bad kind of thing? Which, in rewatching the film, I don't, I don't know how they're telling how much time is going by because... It's possible that he escaped from that cop like within hours. Yeah, a- like after that. 
Right. The drug dealer may have it's gone. It's not been, entirely clear that it's hap- everything's happening in chron- chronological order. Yeah, like that drug deal, like those drug dealers could have been sitting there for more than a day. Right. I mean, who knows how long that had happened. Um, I mean, they, <clears throat> the one cop kind of does point out that it's weird that the uh, coyotes hadn't got at them, but, you know, who knows? Right. You know, whatever. Um, Summing it up. And I, I just felt like, you know, I don't know what the end game of trying to see through a plot like this is. Um, like, I don't know how that helps you, uh, <laughs> you know, like, view the film. It's just... Well, I kind of know what you're saying, but I did make a YouTube video, 10 Reasons Why You Shouldn't Like No Country for Old Men. <laughs> yeah, I think I watched that. Um <laughs> No, I just mean like <clears throat> in something like this, I think the basic idea of a man finding this money that doesn't belong to him, making a snap judgment to take it and then, you know, having to answer for that, you know, being pursued by this guy who relentlessly is insane. Right. And Scary. you know, a third figure, this policeman who's kind of reaching the end of his career, trying his best to intercede before the worst happens. Uh-huh. And it's like that story is there and it's easy to follow. And it's like the little details, I think, now aren't as important. Tommy Lee Jones's character, Ed Tom, <laughs> he, uh,. <laughs> He's kind of he plays it away to Llewellyn's wife that he doesn't care about what Llewellyn's involvement was of taking the money. He just wants to try and help him and protect him. Do you think that's true? Uh probably not. Okay. <clears throat> but I've always been ultimately about that if he was acting out of ultimately uh taking some money in a nonviolent way from a drug deal gone bad isn't going to be, you know, whatever punishment there is for that is not going to be nearly as awful as what right. could potentially happen here. So yeah, that's kind of almost like, you know, it's almost the same as if he's going to do nothing because it's so much better than right. having um, to deal with sugar. The other question I have is the, murder of the cop in the beginning ever mentioned again like because he's on the phone yes all right um i think right before uh right when they find the burned out car yeah they know that uh that's right it's that guy cop car and then he switched it yeah and he switched out again so they're kind of just at a loss for how to pursue this guy but i almost want to say that Ed Tom kind of makes the connection that it has something to do with it at some point, which is kind of unexplained how he would be able to do that, but right. he just kind of intuits that yeah. in some way. He's a hunch cop. And so, you know, after Llewellyn returns with the water, he gets chased by the Mexicans. They send a dog after him. He kills the dog. <laughs> to the chagrin of <laughs> vegan animal rights activists. <laughs> um, but it's not... Really, the Mexicans that we're concerned with for the time being, because, uh, like I said, the the story then kind of focuses on a pursuit 
of Llewellyn by Chigurh and you know Ed Tom trying to put the pieces together to try to find him before Chigurh uh, can. Off, yeah. You know, there's some interesting uh, stops at some motels. I mean, obviously, this is like so much more than an action movie, but this portion of the film definitely builds to like a showdown of just two badass dudes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's some, there's a lot of violence in this movie. Yeah. Uh, more so than uh, most of the uh, Coen Brothers films, um, at least in terms of quantity. I don't know if there's anything quite as ridiculous as like the end of Fargo in this but <laughs> yeah. um there's a lot there's a lot of people shot at close range oh and, yeah <laughs> um Shiger kind of you know goes on an insane killing spree <laughs> yeah to try to um track him down it takes until the second motel until uh Llewellyn figures out that there's a transponder yeah i don't know why you wouldn't think that after the first one i mean right. how in it's the like, world would he find you yeah at this random little motel or whatever right but i mean he's ready for them to find him because yeah he does the whole <laughs> move where he gets the two hotel rooms which is like a reoccurring theme too right but yeah like once they find him uh the mexicans find him too you think that Shigur is closing in on his room but he opens the door. Well, yeah, it's one of the rooms, and the Mexicans are in there, and Shigeru just clears the room. They're <laughs> no match for him. No. Um, and it's weird, because you'd think, like, how many of these Mexicans are trying to find this money? Because it's <laughs> like, you'd think after he kills those three, that the other anybody else involved would be just it's like, yeah, you know group. what. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, once he gets to the second hotel, he talks to the guy out front, and he's just like, look... Any swinging dick that comes in here, you call my room and uh, let me know. And then he's sitting there and he's like, you know, that's really weird that they were able to find me <laughs> and discovers the transponder. Yeah. And then, of course, the big showdown between the two of them at the second hotel. Now, when I saw this sequence for the first time, it was like intense. This is like a pretty suspenseful movie, like throughout, like like you said, the close-range deaths kind of make it feel like anything can happen at any moment. Like, anyone could just get shot in the head at any second, it feels like. But, so, this whole sequence plays out. Uh, it's kind of, like, slow at first. Shigur, you feel, like, approaching the door, and Llewellyn's kind of sitting in the chair waiting for him to open the door. You see him, like, go back down the hall and, like, uh, take out the lights in the hallway. And then it's just, like comes back to the door and it's kind of in like what it ends up being like a surprising move he blows the lock part of the door out and it just like nails Llewellyn in the chest yeah I mean I think some people online were pointing out that if Llewellyn was really like a uh, sniper in Vietnam and all this stuff like why would he just set up right yeah. in front of the door and that's true it is true, but it, it, I mean, things like that, it's just like, it's a movie. Yeah. You know, this, the scene is set up so that it's kind of like cool and intense. Right. <laughs> so he fires the shot off. Uh, he's kind of like <clears throat> writhing in pain and jumps out the window, <laughs> which is that he, does he get shot at that point? He gets shot. No, no, I think it's later. Well, he, when he, yeah, when he 
um, goes back through the hotel. Oh yeah. Goes out the back door, and then he starts shots start coming out the window. Right. Yes. This is the way that they do this uh, whole sequence that kind of spills out into the street and then around the corner after a car's commandeered and that guy gets shot and <laughs> in the neck like immediately as he's trying to drive this car and all this oh, stuff like and this like, whole you're just hearing, like when he's driving that car and you just hear like the pew pew like gunshots like hitting the window it's like such a gnarly scene. Well, yeah, like what I'm saying is starting at that sequence from uh, when the shots start coming out the hotel window and then. Um, as he's trying to like get away in this truck, and then like as he's trying to drive the truck after the truck driver got killed and all this stuff, you never really can tell where Shigur is, and it's right. kind of just this yeah. weird sensation of like these bullets flying, yeah, and hitting like the the windows of the truck and or whatever, and it's kind of this insane kind of moment because you don't know you know where. Shigura is and where these shots are coming from. Right. But he manages to kind of get the drop on Shigura once this they go around his, the corner. His one moment. This is his one chance. And he fires the shot at Shigura, who dives, leaving his, abandoning his weapon, right? Like, doesn't. Uh, or does he drop his weapon? I maybe. Uh, dives behind the car, and uh, Llewellyn keeps firing shots. And comes around the corner of the car, and he's gone. But he's been shot, too. Right. So the movie has to take like a <laughs> detour here for both our uh, characters to recover from their wounds. <laughs> yeah, Llewellyn crosses the border into Mexico and ends, right. Which ends up eventually. Which apparently is just like no yeah. big deal. <laughs> just, well, it was 1980. Yeah. He ends up like in a Mexican hospital while uh, Shigur <laughs> stages an explosion Outside of a pharmacy, so he can raid the pharmacy for oh yeah some drugs to help this him is, which, extract you know, the bullet from his leg. Something we kind of talk about a lot, but yeah, just that idea of like some innocent person whose car is just parked on the street. You know, I think about this with my own life a lot. <laughs> I just leave my car somewhere, and someone you know just puts a rag in the friggin' gas tank and blows it up. <laughs> I just walk outside and I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> some dude just driving to the pharmacy to buy his wife tampons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just what a beatdown. <laughs> At this point, we kind of get introduced to a, another character Carson um, Wells. Yeah, uh, Woody Harrelson playing Carson Wells, who's kind of uh, also a bounty hunter uh, Real type. Full of himself, yeah. Yeah, kind of he like expresses it, that he's had some history with this Anton Sugar. Yeah, um, it kind of you know, it's one of those movies that kind of speaks to an underworld that most people aren't familiar with. But you know, in the same vein as like uh, you know some of the early Tarantino movies or something, where you know there's hitmen and bounty hunters and gangsters and crime lords and murderers and drug dealers and all these people that kind of exist in this world and i guess this kind of is playing on the idea that they would cross paths and be familiar with each other in some way steven rue has gone into panic mode here because he's like look we brought in this big scary dude with this bad haircut and he's just killing everyone i was like we didn't want this we just wanted him to get the money back but he's killing everyone so they, he's now reached out to this other 
cocky bounty hunter to i guess his job is to only get the money really right like well, i think that was all anyone was supposed to right, do right <laughs> i know but he's not he's he's not like given the directive of like go stop sugar hmm i don't know okay seems like maybe maybe he is. okay because at this point, this uh, body count that he's that Shigur is leaving in his wake is kind of bringing a lot of more attention yeah. to this. <laughs> right. And, you know, earlier in the film, uh, we kind of got a little glimpse into the mind of Shigur when he kind of stops at this uh, very uh, small kind of... Like a super tense scene. Out of the way gas station and kind of interacts with the this old guy who's... Uh, who owns the gas station and yeah he kind of simple i think the thing that sets him off is him remarking about the license plate on the car that sugar was driving at the time i think that's what kind of set this whole thing off because if because he goes did you get any rain from up there and he goes "What, what are you talking about and he goes something about i saw that you were from dallas or whatever yeah yeah and then it just le- it leads to this whole thing about, you know, how much have you ever lost on a coin toss right. and, like, demanding that he call it and all this stuff. And without really any spoken direct threat, you just this, you know, really intense kind of, like... Yeah, the guy's like, uh, we're closed. <laughs> Even it's the middle of the day. <laughs> yeah, it's clearly, like, the middle of the day. And the guy's trying to get him to leave by yeah. saying that they close. And he said, what time do you usually close? Right. And he says, it's dark. Yeah. And I saw that kind of pointed out as like one of the interesting little funny Coen Brothers flourishes to the script. Because I think in the novel, that scene is set like kind of at dusk. Mm. So him suggesting that they're closed is not really like a comedic right. thing. It's yeah. kind of a real thing where he's like trying to get him to leave or whatever but in this sense it's kind of funny the man is like so terrified without there being any implicit threat made it's just like or explicit i guess it is implicit but whatever um so i guess since you mentioned it too it's like it's kind of a rare moment because most of the movie is very close to the source material there's not a ton of differences there's a couple Right. Ones that stand out, but I think the scene that I was even talking about where him sitting directly behind the door is different. Yeah. I think he's like he's in the bathroom or he hides in the bathroom or something. That might be right, yeah. And that's why I think that's what drew a lot of people to criticize that particular moment because mm-hmm. it kind of has changed from the book. But yeah, um for the most part, they just took the book and condensed it down. Yeah, which I think this might have won Best Adapted Screenplay also. Yeah, I think so. More Oscar bits for you. Um, and and Bardem won for Supporting Actor. Yeah. I was always kind of blown away that Tommy Lee Jones wasn't even nominated. Right, yeah. Because I, 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 I mean, I walked out of this film being more blown away by him than anything else. Well, who's the lead actor of this movie? Josh Brolin? Um, yeah. I mean, if they submitted anyone for yeah. it, um, probably. But Speaking of Josh Brolin, uh, how familiar with like his career were you at the time when this came out? I feel like I, I, I was just, I looked it up when this came out and I was like, oh, I didn't even, this is the older brother from the Goonies. I didn't know that. 
And then, you know, he went on to be in a lot more. I know he had been in other movies around this time, but... I feel like I this had... pre-W, right? I feel like I had known that the older brother of from the Goonies had been in things before yeah. this, but I can't remember for sure. I don't know how regularly maybe not. he was acting in the time leading up to this. Yeah, I mean, maybe this was like the thing... The coming out party for... What is his name? Bran... Yeah, Bran. Well, he was into the he was in into the blue. <laughs> well, so, there you go. Yeah, I mean, he kind of he wasn't in very much uh, as far as like quality material. Well, Hollow Man. Opinion. Whoa, yeah. The okay. Mod Squad. That's right. All right. Yeah, I never Mimic. Really put that together that he was in Hollow Man. Bed of Roses. Anyway, but an interesting poll anyway at the time for <laughs> flirting with disaster. Uh, the Coen brothers to throw him into this lead role. Yeah, and I mean, this is kind of... I think now that we have like a more a bigger sample size of what his career is like, I think this is probably like the, the ideal role for him. I yeah. don't know if he's really... Not a whole lot of speaking. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not even being critical. I just mean like this is like uh, kind of the... In a lot of ways, this is like the perfect role for him. Yeah. Because he doesn't really scream like action hero, but like he's kind of got like that gruff kind of voice and right. face, and it kind of works. Labor Day. <laughs> Never saw it. <laughs> yeah, me neither, but what a weird movie to exist. <laughs> so, you know, Sugar kills Carson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, instead of continuing his pursuit After, of. After, you know, Wells just having this whole. You know, little spiel to Stephen Root. Oh, yeah, I mean, he's a psychopath, but so what? The world's got tons of those, I mean. And, you know, Sugar tracks him down pretty easily. and Well, he ends up killing him in the same hotel that he had just killed the doorman in, which is insane. Yeah. That's a part that is really hard for me to believe, how easily, like... There was already a murder in that hotel and a huge shooting spree that spilled out into the street, and yet he just walks right back in. And I mean, I, I characters later in the film address that <laughs> about how how because the one guy later on says to Ed Tom, he's like, "How do you even fight against something like that?" Right? Because <laughs> it's just like so insane to them yeah. that he would just come right back to where he had killed people the night before and just <laughs> kill someone else. They're just yeah. like, what? And, you know, Carson immediately starts just being like, which I guess, you know, part of the point is he's like, yeah, I mean, he doesn't really care about money or whatever. And then it immediately is like, there's an ATM down the street. Let's go to it. (laughs) And, you know, instead of continuing his pursuit of Llewellyn, he has now decided to go after Llewellyn's wife in an effort to... Get Llewellyn to come place the money at his feet, as he says. Pretty much. Because it seems like he knows where Llewellyn is, and I think he knows where the money is, too. I mean, Carson certainly knew where the money was at that point. Because Llewellyn had thrown it off of a bridge before crossing Uh, all the way into Mexico. Yeah, which, unclear as to how easy it was to get down there to get the money. (sighs) Yeah, I I never... I never really was sure why Carson didn't just go down and get the money. He saw yeah. it there. They show him finding it, basically, but not, yeah. he just doesn't go and get it. Right. 
I don't know. So I think then Llewellyn's plan is to meet Carla Jean in El Paso. Oh, yeah. Do you know how many people I know in El Paso? This many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Carla Jean's mother uh, is a treat. <laughs> yeah. um, I got the cancer. <laughs> but somehow, and I'm not really sure how this all happens, but Llewellyn gets to El Paso first. Yeah, fully healed seemingly too. He's in pretty good shape at this point. Yeah, that's like one of those weird transitional times that I was talking about because it just kind of snakes its way to, you know, a lot of Tommy Lee Jones scenes. Right. And then it's that's like, true, oh, yeah. well, now we're in El Paso and everything's kind of happening or whatever. Um, And again, they kind of go out of their way to show you that Llewellyn is a decent man. Uh, he got, There's like this brief little flirtation, temptation with a, a woman at the hotel pool. That he kind of, you know, refuses. Um, yeah. And, and there's really no reason to include this scene other than to reiterate, you know, this is a good guy and he made a bad decision. Yeah. Um, because I guess, you know, it's possible that people could view, um, if not handled correctly throughout, that they could potentially view... Llewellyn is like on the same level as the people pursuing him, really, because he's just kind of some dirtbag who got involved in this drug deal, and he's really just getting what's coming to him, and that's really all there is to it. But they kind of want there to be some amount of uh, sympathy, yeah, for his character. Now, what did you think? What did you make of a having? Uh, the Mexicans be the one to kill Llewellyn at the hotel and well, B, is... to have it happen off screen. Yeah, I mean, as far as like disappointing moments in the movie, and you can kind of appreciate the artistic angle to it, but it is like, and I think that this is how it happens in the book too, I believe. Like, the same, I, think, I think it's like through Ed Tom's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but... It is like you go through that whole sequence of the showdown with him and Anton and all this stuff. And just to have him like killed off screen by the this like group of idiots, like really, it's like a pretty big disappointment. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's definitely like a jarring thing the first time and you see it. And it feels like because he shows up, he's just sort of like dead in the doorway, right? Right. Well, there's a Mexican that was shot, too. Yeah. It's kind of like you miss a whole little right. gun battle or what, uh, whatever. But it's like, why is he just right in the doorway? I, I don't know. It's like, for someone who's been very carefully setting up things as he's gone throughout, you know, minus his mistake of sitting in front of the door, you know, he's taken all these certain measures to put himself in a good spot, and it just seems like he was... Well, he very- probably got, was a little complacent because, A, the transponder was gone, and, B... He would have had, I think that the Mexicans, because they find out from the Carla mom. Jean's mother, right. like they kind of had the drop on him. Yeah, that's true. He didn't know that, that they th- were, that they were, they, they could have potentially even been there already. Right. When he oh, shows up. That's true. Yeah. And so in kind of an odd, you know, little uh, twist, you know, Ed, Tom and Sugar kind of are too late. Yeah. Uh f- at least, you know, as far as Llewellyn's concerned. But, you know, that's kind of how it's been going, like, the whole uh, film. 
they're always a step behind him and their paths like i said don't cross and they yet they kind of mirror each other there's like the weird little moments where like their reflections are in the tv at llewellyn's trailer and different things like that you know which leads and plus they have the thing where it's like they show when he goes when he goes back to the scene where llewellyn died to investigate there's the shot of sugar hiding behind the door but i as we talked about the other day it's like it seems like he's supposed to be in what would be the other hotel room yeah that whole scene is kind of odd but they show ed tom kind of looking around and there's this intent it's like kind of a weird uh feeling heading into the scene because you you see like the look on tommy lee jones's face as if like that's kind of this grim acceptance that like he's scared to do this but he feels like he has to and you almost feel like he's gonna get himself killed but i think you know if we learned anything from the first motel that llewellyn stayed at is like he hides the money in the vents and the vents connect from room to room and so he can pull the money from one room to the other right um and it seems like that was probably what was happening here and yeah because they show sugar like behind the door the camera angle changes to show Tommy Lee Jones like open the door all the way, so there's no way he's in that room. Right. You know, which leads to people, I guess, having that theory that you were telling me about. But yeah, uh, that Tommy Lee Jones and Anton Chigurh is the same person. <laughs> which I mean, I don't even in re- what po- in rewatching that movie, I was just like, what what would that accomplish? Right. <laughs> I don't know. Because even like you know the whole end of the film where he's talking about like his dreams and stuff, it's just like, well, what does that have to do with Shakur? Yeah, point? I wish Bell would have been around when that person was telling me this, so it could have been like, that's a dumb opinion. <laughs> and I think you can also surmise, you know, whenever uh, Ed Tom finds like the dime and the bolts from the grate, right? That Sugar probably has the money because if he didn't have the money. He probably would have continued to pursue it. I guess so, yeah. For for no real reason at this point, other than... <laughs> yeah, because we kind of forgot to mention that he just shows up <laughs> in Stephen Root's office and shoots him in the face. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? Nobody. Accounting. <laughs> Did you see me? I know that he has like this weird charm at parts. So the film closes with uh, Shiger going to track down Carla Jean, right? Because because he told Llewellyn that he, that he would <laughs> that he would that if Llewellyn didn't bring him the money, that he would kill his wife. And in his warped mind, he has, he has to. to honor this, right? Even though at this point Llewellyn's dead and the money is wherever either Sugar has it or the Mexicans have it, she does certainly doesn't have it. Yeah, and again, you know, she's killed off screen. And the only way that you even know is because throughout the film, he's checked the bottom of his boots to see if there's blood. Right. And he does it... Outside the house. Outside the house. Yeah. The way that they they do that scene is pretty great. Carla Jean, pretty beaten down at this point. Her mom has died <clears throat> off screen now as well. <laughs> <laughs> and so, oddly, they decide to have Sugar driving away on screen, and it's kind of... Kind of... You don't really know why this is happening. This is at such first. a cool movie, but uh, 
above everything else, such a strange ending. <laughs> I love the ending. No, me story. too. I know. That's Yeah, I, I almost feel like the car accident that Shigura is in is kind of like this strange kind of commentary on the randomness of violence and how that in a way kind of speaks to what ed tom is feeling and why he feels like he has to give this up because in his mind a lot of this violence is random like he can't he's he he can't comprehend this world drive someone to yeah and obviously, as as we find out, um, through that odd character that he goes and visits, I'm not even sure who that guy is. Oh, the old dude in the yeah, like was he like a the, former yeah. sheriff or something? I don't know. Yeah, um, he's got that odd balding head and yeah. all the cats, <laughs> um, and kind of like through his story about the past, something that happened in 1909. You kind of understand that this way that Ed Tom is feeling is not new and not unique. Right. And that's just, it's kind of, and I think deep down Ed that's Tom kind of knows that. Yeah. But it's, he doesn't, he almost isn't angry or resentful for the times changing. It's just that it's more of this kind of acceptance yeah, that that's, that's the way it is. Time to move on. Yeah. Eventually the world passes you by in one way or another. Right. You know? Um, yeah, I think that's like a particularly interesting it's scene. It's like us with Snapchat. <laughs> yeah, more than just that, really. Yeah. Pretty much anything on the internet right. at this point. I'm yeah. just, I don't know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, try taking a chick to see this movie. I mean, give me a <laughs> fucking break. <laughs> It's just like I remember not a strong uh presence of, you know, strong female characters in this movie. I mean <sighs> Oh boy. I mean I remember going on a date to see this movie. Really? I, it was the, I think the second or third time I had seen it at that point, but <laughs> it's just like and I mean the girl I was with, I mean she seemed to like get cool movies and stuff and like but it's just like she's talking over the last scene and I'm just like this is the scene. What like, are you doing? Yeah, it's like you're not. It's like, and I, but to be fair and to be equal, I knew dudes that were like that too. That just like, just drive her home afterwards, not say anything. It's just like that. A lot. I know. I know. I know people that weren't down with that last scene. Yeah, because it's such a random ending. Right after, even after the car crash, even oh, after yeah, this it, weird right. conversation with the dude and the cats, it's like it ends with a with Ed Tom and his wife just sitting at the kitchen table and he's describing a couple of dreams that he had the night before and then yeah. it just ends abruptly. Right. A lot of people, you know, aren't going to ride with that. Yeah. <laughs> they're just not going to get it. Uh, and they're not going to be listening closely to what he's talking about about the dreams and how that's Well, it's a weird jutted pace to the movie because it almost feels like the real climax to it is that first fight between Llewellyn and Shiger that ends with both of them being shot. It's I don't think there's ever a moment where it's like as heightened as that. Right. So that's like halfway through the movie. Llewellyn, the main 
protagonist basically is dead with like 45 minutes left of the movie. No, there's not 45 minutes left. Uh, however, yeah, I guess there might be like 20. All right. <laughs> 45 minutes. It feels like there's a lot of scenes left after he dies. Um there's a handful of scenes. I don't think they equal 45 minutes though. All right. <laughs> Uh yeah, but I know I get what you're saying. I mean, it's hard. It it's definitely a movie to me that you need to see more than once to fully like appreciate it. Although they do give you that rush one last time because it feels like everything has slowed completely down to almost all, like completely halted pace, and then out of nowhere, that car that uh, Shigeru is driving just gets nailed. Right, and it kind of for a second is like elevated again and he has this funny interaction with these two kids with the one dude just staring at the bone sticking out of his arm <laughs> look yeah. at that fucking bone <laughs> yeah you want to talk about like because uh, a lot of movies do it that kind of sudden car crash that people don't see coming right. kind of like you know gets people to jump in their seats that's like a true one of those because there is no reason to expect that to happen right yeah. then that is like so out of the blue, right? Like just plot wise, you're like, why would that happen right now? Like yeah. It wouldn't even occur to you, right. or something. <laughs> He's only just down the street from where he just killed someone, too. It's a, it's a, it's a cool movie. Um, it's one of the only times, you know, in recent, probably ever, that like the actual best picture of a year one best picture. Right. I know. I was gonna bring that up. Like, There's a handful of times where it was just like that year. I was like. That was definitely the coolest, best movie I had seen that year, and for it to actually win, I was pretty surprised. Yeah, I mean, there are there are years where good movies win Best Picture. There are years when the best movie nominated wins Best Picture, but most of the time, you know, it's something that people won't care about in three years anyway. Right? It's just King's know. Speech. It's just like Oscar bait garbage. Like the artist, for Christ's oh, sake. Does anyone even remember? No. Like no one will ever care about that. Yeah. But every now and then, you know, everything aligns and the actual best movie wins. Yeah, that's right. American Beauty. Yeah. <laughs> and this. <laughs> and Titanic. <laughs> <clears throat> I think we got to cut it short. Well, I don't know if it's short, but we got to end it because... I don't know how much longer I can talk. Yeah, okay. But <laughs> I'm really struggling right now. So that's the movie. We really like it. And uh <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe we're giving it short shrift, like we can't really get into it as much as we'd like. I don't know. Who knows where this would go, but yeah, there's more I just stuff. Yeah. I just can't right Anton now. Anton Sugar, fate, yeah, whatever. <laughs> well, obviously, yeah, the, the the idea that he blames the coin toss. Right. Like, he puts a lot of this, these things on coin tosses as to whether or not he'll kill somebody. Yeah. And he, so, he, in his mind, which is obviously warped, he's leaving it up to fate. And he's able to kind of give himself, like, this distance from making the decision. Like, yeah. It's not him that's doing this. It's sociopathic tendencies. <laughs> um, and that, you know... It, it kind of is a pretty uh, obvious uh, metaphor for the whole thing because, you know, 
it's kind of about fate and him taking the money and him going back to give that guy water and him just getting, you know, these decisions and where they lead and who they affect and all that stuff. So happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I don't know <laughs> if we're going to get this posted before Thanksgiving. We will. All right. Yeah. We got plenty of big stuff for the rest of the year. Uh, we're really excited as we approach our 50th episode. We don't really have an exact plan yet. Hopefully it'll be as cool as Roadhouse for 25. I don't know. That'll be tough to top. <laughs> as always, you know, follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod. Subscribe on iTunes, rate and review. Tell your friends to listen. We'll see you at the theater. All right. I guess that'll do it, and uh, we'll see you next time. Maybe I'll go riding. Okay. What do you think? Well, I can't plan your day. I mean, would you care to join me? Lord, no, I'm not retired. Maybe I'll help out here then. Uh, better not. How'd you sleep? I don't know. I had dreams. Well, you got time for them now. Anything interesting? There always is to the party concerned. And Tom, I'll be polite. All right, then. Two of them both had my father in them. It's peculiar. I'm older now than he ever was by 20 years. So, in a sense, he's the younger man. Anyway, the first one I don't remember too well, but it was about meeting him in town somewhere and he gave me some money. I think I lost it. The second one, it was like we was both back in older times. And I was a horseback going through the mountains of the night, going through this pass in the mountains. It was cold and there was snow on the ground. And he rode past me and kept on going, never said nothing going by, just rode on past. And he had his blanket wrapped around him, his head down. When he rode past, I seen he was carrying fire and a horn the way people used to do. And I, I could see the horn from the light inside of it, about the color of the moon. And in the dream, I knew that he was going on ahead. And he's fixing to make a fire somewhere out there and all that dark and all that cold. And I knew that whenever I got there, he'd be there. Then I woke up.